Support for the Source podcast comes from UT Health San Antonio, South Texas' largest academic research institution, where what is discovered in its labs translates into life-changing patient care. More at groundbreakingresearch.org. Live from the John L. Santico studio, this is The Source from Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies. Frank DeHalo won three terms to represent San Antonio South Texas in Congress. He was a rising star of democratic politics, but his life was cut short with the development of an aggressive brain cancer. Here's what fellow San Antonio Congressman Henry B. Gonzalez said about Frank DeHalo on the floor of the House days after his death. Mr. Speaker, it's uh, my extremely sad duty, and may I say it's an honor and a privilege to offer a few words of praise and, of course, tribute to a friend and a dear colleague, Frank Tejeda, who died too soon, far short of the full realization and the promise of his potential. But though his life was shortened by a terrible and a very tragic disease, he left behind a legacy of great achievement. He made his life a model, and I think others will do well to emulate him. A compassionate and a deeply caring human being. I don't think anybody worked harder than Frank Tejeda, nor worked with greater patience and determination. Nobody served his district more carefully. Nobody treated people with more respect and decency. He was a credit to his community and to this house. His loss is a tragedy for his family, for his community, and for this house. Frank Tejeda's younger brother, Juan Tejeda, has written a book about the congressman titled Mi Carnal Frank. Juan Tejeda is well known for his advocacy of Tejano culture. He's the founder of the Cajunto Festival, retired professor of Mexican-American studies and music at Palo Alto College, and a hell of an accordion player. And Juan, welcome back to The Source. Thank you, David. Glad to be here. And let me apologize up front. Uh, after the book launch last week, uh, there was a lot of people, family and friends, and I got a little sick, <clears throat> caught a cold, not fever, it's it's not COVID, David, <laughs> and uh, I'm just recovering, so I'm going to sound a little congested and nasal. I appreciate your. All right, but you're so you're not in good voice, but we, we you sound good to me. Uh, so one, this book, it, it needed we needed this book, and I'm wondering why we didn't have it before. Why this has waited so long uh, to tell the story of this uh, pioneer of uh, civil rights in San Antonio a person who changed, redefined, reinvented politics in San Antonio. Uh, why, why was it, you know, why did it fall upon you to write this book? And I write in the introduction to the book that uh, uh, in 2006, I asked that same question, David, why isn't there a book on Frank? You know, I mean, and he, I know he died at 51 years, but he did a lot of amazing stuff. And so I then decided to do a little bit of research and interview my mom and some brothers, sisters, and get the pictures and family photos and documents, especially from my mom, uh, Lilia Cisneros Tejeda, 
and uh, began doing research. Then I stopped for 10 years because of work at Palo Alto and with the Tejano Conto Festival and Somos Mas. Uh, and then I came back when I retired in 2016 and began doing research and writing the book again. I finished it four years ago. Well, I don't think anyone could have written this book but you, uh, you know, with the personal touches to it. But uh, I do, I told you earlier how uh, there, the, the documentation that you have is essential uh, is because um, some of the things, stories you tell about Frank Tejedo are almost unbelievable. You wouldn't believe them if you didn't see the documents themselves, particularly about his stellar uh, service in the Marines. Very true. Uh, uh, we, I put in 127 photos, a lot of family photos that my mom gave me that we had, nobody else had. Um, but also from the San Antonio Express News front page uh, articles, copies of the, of the front page uh, uh, stories, right, of the newspaper, uh, photos at the Express News also that I uh, got commissioned and, and licensed, uh, and documents. In the book, there's actually uh, six letters that Frank wrote to my mom, the actual letters in his handwriting and everything, when he was in Vietnam, uh, because I wanted... I said, how am I going to express, you know, and my mom collected, you know, 13 letters that he wrote to her and had them there for me. And uh, how can I better express than what he was writing from Vietnam, you know, his Vietnam period. So my narrative streams along. Uh, um, the photos for me and the documents that are in this book are just as much and not more part of Frank's story than the narrative that that I string along there. All right. Um, we did ask our listeners if they had memories of Frank DeHeather. We have a voicemail. Uh, let's give it a listen. This is Richard Morris, and I'm responding to your request uh, for remembrances on Frank Tejeda. As a faculty member at UTSA and VP for the Texas Research and Technology Foundation, I was privileged to work with Mr. Tejeda in the mid-80s. I supported Mr. Tejeda's office when he co-sponsored legislation via the Science and Technology Committee in Austin to establish the Texas R&D Authority. Thank goodness for Mr. Tejeda's foresight and leadership as a champion of innovation. His vision made it possible for Texas to capture the lead in semiconductor research and development. So much has happened to the good of Texas since then. Without exaggeration, Mr. Tejeda's work in the mid 80s laid the groundwork for a diversified Texas economy and it accounts for the sustained growth and quality of life that now blesses Texas today. Thank you, Mr. Tejeda. Real quickly, a response. I hadn't heard that. <laughs> I hadn't heard that piece, but I knew that Frank played a vital role in the development of the Texas Research Park and bringing, he wanted to bring economic health and prosperity to his community, obviously, and to the whole city and the district that he represented and his people because he knew there was inequality. And he knew that it had to come about through education, through economic development, you know, and jobs. And, and veterans, you know, of course, he was a veteran, so that was a big issue. But education and economic development were his, two of his biggest things when he was in office. And where do you think that came from? 
exactly what I said before. He knew that being raised poor here on the south side of San Antonio, our parents were poor. My father was a disabled veteran, and they lived through the Depression and World War II. <clears throat> Excuse me. He knew, and he knew, and he experienced the racism also of being a Mexican in the United States, a Mexican-American, and he bordered the Chicano generation, which I kind of come up right behind him. Um, he knew that in order for there to be true justice and equality for us as Mexican-Americans and all people, African-Americans, all people, uh, that there had to be educational equality and parity and equality education for all. Right, and so we need... And not based on wealth and property values like it is still today. Right. And he knew that there had to be economic parity and economic development in our communities, our poor communities. We're taking a break. We're having a conversation with Juan Tejeda talking about the book he wrote about his brother, former Congressman Frank Tejeda, Mi Carnal Frank. Got a question or comment, call in 833-877-8255. This is The Source on Texas Public Radio. We'll be right back. Support for TPR comes from La Fonda on Main, honoring the authentic cuisine of interior Mexico since 1932. Open for lunch, brunch, and dinner. More information at lafondaonmain.com. You're listening to The Source on Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies, speaking with Juan Tejeda. He's written a book about his brother, the uh, former Congressman Frank Tejeda. Uh, the book is Mi Carnal Frank. It's a family memoir. It talks a lot about their family and their deep, deep roots in San Antonio that go way back before European settlement uh, and just how uh, San Antonio has changed so much uh, since those years uh, and civil rights and how Frank uh, was a leader in, on the vanguard of uh, bringing justice to so many in San Antonio. We're going to talk more about that. I'm going to play a clip here. Uh, this is Frank Tejeda on the floor of the Congress, of the House, uh, talking about trying to uh, save Kelly Air Force Base. The speaker, this resolution represents the end of a long and painful process for many communities and their citizens. While these communities are now turning their attention to reuse efforts and planning for the future, we have this final opportunity to overturn the Base Closure Commission's recommendations. In my opinion, the Base Closure Commission made a mistake in voting to close two of the Air Force's air logistics centers. These depots are located in San Antonio, Texas and Sacramento, California. My colleagues from San Antonio and Sacramento will speak to this decision in a few minutes, so I will not add to that specific debate yet. It should come as no surprise, then, that the San Antonio and Sacramento delegations introduced resolutions of disapproval. This issue is not a partisan issue. Base closures and economic losses cut across party lines. I stand here before the House because my constituents and my district, and in fact this nation, does not deserve the closure of Kelly Air Force Base. I do not believe that closure of Kelly Air Force Base is in the best interest of our national security. If there is a way to keep Kelly open, we will fight that fight. And this is what this resolution of disapproval is all about. I expect nothing less from my colleagues across the nation who also lose bases and jobs in this process. And we will hear from them. In contrast, I expect that those whose districts stand to gain from these recommendations to voice their strong support for the Base Closure Commission's recommendations. I have no illusions about the final outcome of this matter. It is the bottom of the ninth and we're behind a lot of runs. But this does not mean that we give up and walk off the field. There are important issues which need to be addressed, 
and I look forward to a lively discussion during the next two hours. Mr. Speaker, I reserve the balance of my time. So there's a lot of Frank in that speech, isn't there? What do, what do, you, what, what do you hear, Juan? Well, first of all, it's just uh, a joy in, of hearing his voice again. I hadn't heard it in a long time. But that was Frank. He was strong. He was clear. He was forceful. That was from the moment that he won as U.S. congressman in, in 1992 and took, began uh, his congressional career in 1993 until the date that he died in 97 at age 51. Um, Kelly and the base closures here in San Antonio were the primary issue. I mean, yeah, he worked on other things and got monies for people who didn't have water and sewer services here on on the south side, you know, in Telma and beyond. Uh, but the closing of the bases was the big issue. And I, I go into detail about the work that he did in this book here at the end of his life and career. He made a point of fighting as hard as he could to keep Kelly. Kelly, people don't understand how, what Kelly did for San Antonio. It brought jobs, but more than it brought jobs, it brought, uh, it created this Mexican-American middle class and opportunities for uh, people that we never had before. The city of San Antonio had a strategy of uh, having only low-income jobs for Mexican-Americans in San Antonio. That was their big attraction. We'll bring Levi's to San Antonio and these other groups to, to manufacture stuff but because we, we had low-wage workers. But then we had Kelly, and Kelly started hiring people to do and become, and they had, and they had opportunities and then we created a middle class and those were able to send their children to college and created a whole new trajectory so the loss of kelly was tremendous and i'm sure frank saw that and not just kelly but all of the bases remember we have five six bases yeah. here in san antonio a lot of them were lost brooks uh you know um i think lackland's still here but yeah. kelly was a big one and, and like you say and frank says and i quote him in the book that it was kelly and these other bases that created the mexican-american middle class in san antonio you know and uh got better jobs as you said for our people and the loss of kelly and these other bases meant thousands and thousands of jobs lost principally amongst the mexican-american community also but you know there were all races involved that lost their jobs, all ethnic groups, uh, but it really affected the Mexican-American community here in San Antonio. And then <clears throat> I detail how he went into, you know, had to move into privatization, and he worked hard for that. Well, um, we need to bring out the fact that uh, Frank had his enemies. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of people who did not like the fact that Frank Tejeda had managed to bring together the Southside Coalition and they were able to uh, vote as a block and able to um, to re make reforms. Frank was a reformer, and he realized if you're going to be a reformer, you need to have political power in order to do so. And uh, that struck people who did not want to see these reforms enacted in San Antonio. They saw him as a threat, and they ran after him. Uh, they put money behind him to try to defeat him. Uh, I want to play a political ad for uh, Frank's campaign. This is from 1990, and he's running for state senate again. Uh, this is a TV ad, and it's of a, of a guy with a, like a ventriloquist puppet playing around with it, and let's give a listen to, to the ad. 
Every couple of years, millionaire claims lawyer Pat Maloney and his buddies try to handpick our elected officials for it. This year, he's backing one of his own employees against our Senator Frank Tejeda. They're using every courthouse trick in the book to get their boy elected. But you have to ask yourself this. When their candidate speaks, who's really doing the talking? The master or the dummy? Who's a dummy? Let's re-elect Senator Frank Tejeda. He speaks for us. So um, can you give kind of like why this message was important at the time? What, what were they really saying? And I go into detail about Frank's political campaigns also and the people that tried to stop him, you know. And and, and basically they just came out and said, you know, that Frank, excuse me, Frank's uh, political career, uh, one person said, needs to be exterminated. <laughs> really. Uh, there's some great battles, and I detail a lot of them. In this case, it was Pat Maloney, local prominent lawyer here. And in fact, it was... Because, because one of the things that Frank's was tort reform was one of Frank's things. Exactly. And not only that, but uh, um, Pat Maloney came up with the big case, and I detailed this in Frank's when he was uh, at the end of his state representative career in 1985 and 1986, that you know, he took the Texas Supreme Court to task. He was the chair of the Texas uh, Judicial Affairs Committee and exposed how, as the 60 Minutes program with Mike Wallace said that, that interviewed Frank at that time because of this, is justice for sale in Texas? Because all these big lawyers were giving right. thousands of dollars to the Supreme Court justices. Then their cases were, were coming before their courts, right? And they were getting preferential treatment. It was called. It was called the uh, best court money can buy. <laughs> there you go. And uh, and so I mean, this was when it was all Democrats. So yeah. Hey, well, that's, it's not too different now. <laughs> yeah. But still, he was he was a reformer trying to you know make it fair. When you have single party rule, uh, it's easy to make things uh, corrupt. And he was trying to rectify that. Uh, so which was why I mean. So at the time. I mean, he was a state senator. You know, he won that re-election, uh, and he continued to fight for reform in Texas, regardless of uh, political stripes. You know, uh, he was such a you know the polite word is irritant to the political class. So they had a policy like if they they so when redistricting came around and they had to add new congressional seats, they basically drew a seat specifically for Frank Tejeda so that he would leave the state Senate. Frank was co-chairing that Senate redistricting committee. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, you know, gerrymandering and there's gerrymandering and there's gerrymandering from both parties, you know, every year. And it's gotten worse, I think, of how they're dividing the vote here. But Frank... Um, well, they did the same thing to Barbara Jordan. You know, yeah. they need to get rid of her out of the state Senate because she was c causing too much trouble. And then they said, well, you know, this is how they, they, they promoted people so they can continue with their shenanigans. I think somebody in Washington, I, I put that quote in here, said with that election from Frank to, uh, to U.S. Congress his first year in 1992, that he was the only congressman in the United States that ran unopposed. The first, uh, first term <laughs> congressman. First term congressman, exactly. Who ran unopposed. Ran unopposed. I guess in history, maybe. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. But um, it, it certainly is interesting. But um, 
is, what were his issues that when he was communicating to the voters, what did he? What was he telling the voters why vote for uh, Frank to him? As a U.S. congressman, or yeah. in general, or in general, in his career, yeah. Well, veterans' rights and benefits was always one of his big ones, and in fact, one of his signature pieces of legislation was the Veterans Housing Program Assistance Program. When he was in, 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 as a state rep in 1985, I believe, he passed that for the first time and took a, a Texas constitutional amendment to, to get uh, lower interest loans for the veterans. And that was huge. At that time, there was millions of veterans here. I think they said something like uh, 500,000 were just Vietnam veterans alone. They're like 1.6 million veterans. And that was back in, in 1984, 85. Interest rates were 15% there to, for people to buy loan, uh, homes. And Frank got that, that passed that the government, the state, uh, were giving low interest 10%. Yeah, that was low back so, then. So I mean, of course, you know, Frank was a veteran himself and a war sure. hero. But it seems to me, when Frank was fighting so hard for veterans' benefits, that he wasn't thinking about himself. He was thinking about your dad. Exactly. Our who dad was a, was a, a World War II hero. He was a World War II, also won the Bronze Star and Purple Heart, just like Frank. When Frank came back from Vietnam, so so many interesting. Frank was born on October second, which was the same day that my father was born. They, uh-huh. you know, so you know, Frank was a special <laughs> child. So he won that junior legitimately. <laughs> yeah, no, and and uh, he won the Bronze Star and Purple Heart. My father in World War Two, and Frank went to went to Vietnam and came back Bronze Star and Purple Heart. And he was wounded on the left leg where my father was wounded also, but our father um, had a much more serious wound. And so your father was on permanent disability. Yes, he was. And um, he, he, and, you he know, and, and he says that he would remember going with your father to the VA and seeing how the service needed to be improved. You know, he saw our father had to wear a brace on his left leg from the knee down to be able to walk. Um, he was seriously injured and cut like all his nerves in his leg, and he didn't want them to cut off his leg. Uh, and yet, when he came back from World War II, they only gave him 25% disability. This was the first sort of injustice, I think, that a lot of people don't listen to in veterans that are more seriously wounded, or such as in Vietnam, that they really never wanted to take into account the post-traumatic stress disorder. We didn't as, even have that word yet. Right? Yeah, like they, we had shell shock. My it. father, you said that in World War II, they called it shell shock, right? But 25%, when he couldn't even work, you know, I mean, he was going to, he ended up working all his life. I mean, he did. With the brace, he was able to walk with a limp, you know, but he hit it very well. <laughs> and he even danced <laughs> those polquitas and valses, beautiful valses out at Venadito nightclub with my mom. All right. Um, so we're going to take another break. Our, our phone lines are open. Uh, we would love to hear more stories uh, about Frank Tejeda. If you have uh, an experience, a story to tell, about how uh, state rep, state senator, congressman Frank Tejeda 
impacted you or your family, uh, please give us a call. The number is 833-877-8255, 833-TPR-TALK. You can also send us an email to the source at tpr.org. We're having a conversation with Juan Tejeda. He's written the book about his brother, Mikarnal Frank. When we come back, I want to talk about Harlandale High School and those days mm-hmm. over there and how he ran rough with the gangs and how that came out how that turned around but there's a lot more to tell so stay tuned this is the source on texas public radio we'll be right back I'm Tanya Mosley. And I'm Juana Summers. People collect all sorts of things. Sports memorabilia, stamps and antique lamps. If you've collected a few classic cars over the years and you also love public radio, consider this. Donate it to this station and it could mean hundreds of dollars in support. Donate online at tpr.careasy.org or call 877-486-1227. This is The Source on Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies having a conversation with Juan Tejeda. He is known uh, as a, a sanitary musician, also the founder of the Conjunto Festival. Uh, he has uh, was a he retired as a professor of Mexican-American studies and music at Palo Alto College, but also he is known as the younger brother of Frank Tejeda Jr., who was the uh, congressman representing San Antonio, South Texas. Uh, He's written a book, a memoir, uh, about uh, himself, his family, and uh, his brother, Mikarnal Frank. Uh, So if our phone lines are open, 833-877-8255, 833-TPR-TALK, we'd love to hear some more stories uh, that you have. You know, listeners, if you knew Frank, give us a call. Love to hear that. So why do you call the book Mikarnal Frank? You know, that's a good question, David. And some people recommended that I not use it. Why why didn't you use mi hermano, Frank? Right? Excuse me. And uh, uh, because Frank was raised, when he went from St. Leo's grade school through the eighth grade and then went to Harlandale Junior High Middle School and, and then high school, 1959 through 1963, there was this developing urban Chicano, you know, Mexican-American Pachuco culture that was happening here in the big city of San Antonio. I mean, here we've, the Mexican-Americans have been the majority population probably, you know, forever. <laughs> the indigenous Since Mexican day one. <laughs> people within the United States. This is our land, as you mentioned earlier. We have been here for thousands of years. You know, this is Yanaguana still and always will be. Uh indigenous lands, you know. But anyway, um, so he he was brought up in this urban Pachuco culture that was very violent in high school. And it was completely different what he had experienced at St. Leo's grade school, first through eighth grade. This was a much bigger public school where the Anglos were still the dominant people. They were the majority, but, but Mexican-Americans were making inroads. And there were these fights between the, the Anglos and the Mexicans you know, and the Mexicans and the Mexicans, because there was gangs out there like El Circle and La Misión and El Wally. Uh, which is a grocery store? Which is a little Chinese grocery store there uh, towards Mission Road uh, in, in the barrio there, and they kind of hung out there. 
so yeah, but but my cousin Tony and and Roger say that there were fights almost every day between the the gringos as as they said and uh, and the mexicanos, right? And that many a times they were up in, in in the halls of the school there at Harlandale High School with their backs against the wall, tirando patadas and chingazos, as they say, you know, <laughs> slang. So yes, this is part of of, of Mexican American culture, this hybrid language that developed with the the Pachuco culture in in our in our urban areas, you know, here and across the United States from the 40s and into the 50s, uh, that we developed our what they call you know, this Chicano Caló language. It's a mixture of Spanish and English, being, you know, Mexicans within the United States. English still is the first language taught at school. This hybrid mixture, you know, uh, mestizaje, um, and then some indigenous words, you know, and, and creating a whole new language and lifestyle and dress and, and hip, you know, cholo, pachuco style. And so, but having the book, you know, saying Mi Carnal, you know, of course, you know, I, I, I'm familiar with the expression, yeah. you know, and it is from the street, you know, a lot. You it's know. part of that, you know, Chicano, Mexican-American, Pachuco culture. And I wanted to emphasize that because I, I think in a lot of ways, and you ask me why, because I thought about it very seriously, why I left it Mi Carnal Frank instead of you know, my brother Frank or mi hermano Frank, which would be more formal and, and not more the street, because I think the street in San Antonio and this urban pachuco culture that Frank experienced and the violence gave him that fighting spirit that followed him throughout his life and in his political and legislative career that he was known for. Somebody said, I think Rick Casey from the Express News, that Frank combined fast fists with Ivy League degrees. <laughs> and he wasn't speaking metaphorically. <laughs> no. speaking literally. So let's go to the story that has, I mean, you know, that's still legendary in San Antonio. You can still probably hear it in some ice houses, you know, <laughs> over the Domino's tables being, you know, that we have in San Antonio about what happened to Frank, why he left high school. Just tell that story. Well, as, as I said, there was a lot of violence there at Harlandale. And a lot of prejudice. A lot of racism, a lot of prejudice, discrimination against the Mexican students. The teachers were all Anglos. The administration was all Anglos. They didn't have Mexican-American studies back then or anything that was going to teach us something positive about our own culture. You know, it was very racist. And that's part of the reason that it was very violent. And still is in a lot of ways. Just look at all the TV ads, political ads right now. Anyway... Uh, so they used to call Frank and my cousin Roger, uh, call them the Tejeda boys in high school, and always sending them to the office, expelling them, putting them in detention. And I, I say in the book, it was one of the defining moments for Frank. It was his senior year, 1963, you know, right on the verge of 62, 63. He was already going to graduate from Harlandale in 63. My mom had already bought the caps and gowns and the invitations and the photos and everything. Anyway... The, the vice principal, Ritterman, and there's a lot of myths surrounding who he punched out. Some people said it was the, the principal at Harlandale, the vice principal, a counselor, a teacher for saying these things to Frank. Roger says that he was with him when it happened, and, and they were just walking down the halls, and vice principal Ritterman at that time, 1963, came up to Frank and started pointing his finger in his chest and telling something, and Frank just hit him. Well, he was telling him derogatory terms about well, being a Mexican-American. I don't know. He could have just been telling him, you know what, you know, you didn't, you didn't come to uh, 
uh, you know, school yesterday and you're in detention or something. I don't know what he told him. We okay. don't know the exact word. Well, the legend is. Roger, because yeah. I asked Roger, because I did a, you know, an interview with my primo Roger, who was with him, you know, because there's a lot of versions to the story. And he said that, uh, you know, Frank had just had enough. So, but he, he couldn't remember what was exactly he said. I don't know. Frank just hit him and took off running down the hall. And so he, he was, punched him in the face. He punched him in the face, knocked him on his... Yeah. I don't know if you can say <laughs> as on this. <laughs> you can beat me out there, yeah. bleep me out or whatever. Anyway, knocked him on his ass, took off running down the hall, and Roger says, well, I will you. And I took off after him. We went into the parking lot, got into his 52 Chevy, and took off down to the San Antonio River. They knew they were in trouble again or were going to be expelled or you know, maybe even... Could have been gone to jail. Could have gone to jail, Exactly. Frank and Roger, they were seniors, like I said. They never went back to school. They never went back to Harlandale. And then uh, after that, one day, Frank just came with a Marine recruiter to our parents' house and told them to sign. And they didn't want to sign before. He was still only 17 years old, underage, and Vietnam was beginning to happen and to heat up. But they signed, and that day, he flew out of San Antonio, same day, to San Diego, California for basic training. But he closed the deal with your parents by saying that the military will pay for his college. Yes, he did. He said, you know, uh, because my father asked him, ¿Por qué le pegaste? You know, why did you hit him? (laughs) (laughs) And that Frank supposedly said, and this is, you know, from Roger, los alemanes no los tratan bien, you know. You know, the the Germans don't treat us right, right? Right. Uh, that um, there was a big German population. Of well, we had, the, the Harlandale Baptist Church was sure. the big controlling force at the time. Sure. I'm going to go to a caller. Uh, Robert, thanks for hanging on. And Robert, you're on the air. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Love the stories. Uh, I just wanted to say, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, my father served in the Marine Corps with Frank. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had a, uh, Frank was his platoon commander uh, in the Marine Corps Reserves. Uh, I didn't know that until I was uh, already a teenager. But uh, when I was in high school at uh, McCullum, my government teacher, Ronald Slack, Ronnie Slack, uh, was a campaign manager for Frank Tejeda. And um, he, uh, after after Frank uh, died, uh, one of the administrators from, I believe it was the, the uh, uh, school council, came in and said, uh, asked you know, uh, we want to name something after Frank Tejeda. What do you think it should be? And at first he said, you know what, Harlandale High School, just to get back at that vice principal. But then he, he corrected himself. He said, no, you know what? Name the alternative school after Frank. Because if he was in high school today, that's where he would be. <laughs> yeah. And they did name an alternative high school after Frank, the Frank M. Tejeda Academy there on the south side on Loop 410. Robert, thank you so much for that phone call. We appreciate yeah. it. Anyone else got a story about Frank DeHead? We'd love to hear it. Give us a call, 833-877-8255. And so, of course, uh, Frank did join the Marines, and he excelled in that. Uh, the, tell me this real quickly because i got about a minute to break. The awards that he won, uh, was that in training or how? what was that? Well, that came later when he went to Officers Candidate School. Okay. that he got the highest score in the history of the Marine Corps and won all four awards that they offered. But that was when he was in law school at University of California in Berkeley. He was, at 19 years old, was meritoriously promoted to sergeant in the Marine Corps when he was in Vietnam. 
And uh, he wrote in a letter that's in the book and said, you know, it was thought to be impossible that somebody could make it in a little over two years, make sergeant. He goes, usually you have to serve four years and your second enlistment, you get sergeant, right? He said, I made it in a little over two years. They thought it was impossible. And why do you think he was capable of doing that? Because I really think that after all the violence and racism that he experienced here at Harlandale, um, and which created that fighting spirit in me, he wanted to prove, you know, and the Marine Corps gave him that sort of somewhat level playing field that we as Mexican-Americans were just as good as any other ethnic group, you know, that we were not inferior and that we were just as good, if not better. And he wouldn't, Frank didn't want anybody to beat him at anything. <laughs> That's the way Frank was. All right. I All right, we're taking another break. It's a quick break, one minute break. Uh, if you got a question, a comment, want to tell us for Frank to hear the story, 833-877-8255, 833-TPR-TALK. Uh, this is The Source on Texas Public Radio. We'll be right back. I had a big yellow pickup truck that I really liked until it stopped running and it was going to cost more money than it was worth to get it fixed. I had it parked in front of my house. I should say I had it abandoned in front of my house. And then the police came and they put a sticker on it, said I had to get rid of it. And I remembered then that Texas Public Radio has a vehicle donation program. So it would take care of a problem that I had but it would also generate income for Texas Public Radio that would be used to pay for news, educational, cultural content, classical music. I did it. I went online to the TPR website, got the details, and it was really easy. It worked out a lot better than I expected. If you have a vehicle that you need to get rid of, maybe it's like my situation or you just don't use it anymore, and you want to make this donation, it doesn't have to be a truck. It can be a car, motorcycles, buses, RVs, golf carts, boats, trailers, whatever you got, whatever you want to get rid of, and just go to the tprcareasy.org, and this will be a really win-win for a lot of folks. You're listening to The Source on Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies, and we're talking about the legacy and the stories of former Congressman Frank Tejeda, uh, he died just he shortly after he won his third term in Congress. Uh, there had a, a a tribute opportunity for members of Congress to talk about uh, their memories of Frank Tejeda at that time. And uh, not everyone that that sang his praises were Democrats. Uh, I do want to play uh, someone from the other side of the aisle. Uh, this is from uh, Lamar Smith, Republican. Uh, what he had to say about his memories of Frank Tejeda. In 1976, I was a new attorney fresh out of law school. I had just joined a law firm in the Milan Building in downtown San Antonio. I began to hear and read about another young attorney who was planning to run for state representative against an entrenched incumbent. The young challenger's name was Frank Tejeda, and he had an impressive record, including having received many honors in the Marine Corps. He also had some interesting ideas about reforming government that appealed to me. Frank's law office was also in that same Milan building. One day I walked up several flights of stairs to meet him and to give him a campaign contribution. 
It was only a check for $15, but it was the first political contribution I had ever made. Frank said, in fact, it was only the second campaign contribution he had received after one from a relative. We had some good laughs about it during the years that followed. Those years saw him hold three offices as a Democrat and saw me hold several offices as a Republican, including a stint as Bexar County Republican Party chairman just two years after I made that first contribution to Frank Tejeda. Now, I've always considered that contribution to have been a very good investment. The potential Frank Tejeda showed back then proved out during his years of public service, from the Texas legislature to his reelection to Congress last November. And we still hear and read about his dedication to country, his steadfastness, his integrity. He kept his promises. So, um, Juan Tejeda, this, 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 we just heard the story from the other side of the aisle, uh, you know, Lamar Smith. But uh, they knew they could work with Frank on issues that they had in common, that he was able to find the common good and, and achieve things, uh, even against, uh, it wasn't a political opponent, it was just, you know, find things that would work. Is that was his attitudes? Well, those were different times back in the early 90s also than there are now. But yes, Frank always had Republicans for Tejeda, even though he was a Democrat. Ernesto Ancira was his campaign manager when he ran for Senate. His treasurer. The first, the, a ca campaign treasurer, exactly. Thank you. Um, I said manager. I don't remember who his manager was at the time, but he was the treasurer. So Frank uh, always had support from Republicans throughout his political career, you know, 20 years. So it doesn't surprise me, and he got a lot of, like, again, th there were different times back then. It's not as polarized as, as it is right now between uh, Democrats and Republicans. But uh, it was said that in San Antonio at the time, uh, we had three political parties. Uh, we had the Democrats, the Republicans, and the he and the Tejedas. <laughs> yeah. Somebody said the the Democrat, the Republican, and the Tejedan. <laughs> <laughs> and so what, they, what do they mean by that? What was it? The South Side Coalition, he was accused of running a political machine. He was even called the dictator of the South Side. And, and that this is, I think, one of the important parts of the book uh, is that the story of Frank developing this very powerful and influential political alliance that came to be known as the Southside Coalition of, you know, state reps, state senators, city council people, you know, school board members, and they formed a powerful political bloc. I don't think that that has ever been du duplicated in the... Um, Mexican-American community, definitely, but not even in the Anglo community or black community, what Frank developed at the time. And yes, they had their problems and, and fallings in and out, but uh, he, he became one of the most powerful, I think, uh, uh, Mexican-American politicians and politicians in general at that time that, that San Antonio and Texas have ever known, really. So when they accused him that you're running a political machine, he said, no, we're running a cleaning machine. What, what did he mean by that? Is that he was bringing reforms to the good old boy system and the way it's always been, right? And special interests taken over the, of the interests of the community and the people that they're supposed to serve. And they elected them to serve. He was first and foremost about providing services, again, educational, economic, crime, veterans' rights, 
Environmental? Environmental justice issues, you know. That was he was instrumental in, in cleaning up Mitchell Lake. Mitchell Lake. But, you know, when they built the Alamo Dome, they found contaminated soil. They had to do that. You know, at Kelly, there was contamination. These were all, you know, and throughout his life, he was very keen also. I mentioned education, veterans, and, and economic development, but uh, environmental justice issues always for his people and community. So he developed a powerful organization that I think is never going to be able to be done again. I got an email from a listener, uh, Claudia Alvarez. She says she wanted to share a story about Representative Tejeda's impact on her family and the death of her father in 1988 when she was 12 years old. Uh, the father was given a diagnosis of, um, of lung cancer and brain cancer and that he died shortly thereafter, like weeks afterwards. The family didn't have time to get their financial uh, events into order and that your father, um, your brother, Frank, was able to help them uh, the mother recalled seeing an interview in the Spanish language network with Representative Tejeda. She reached out to his office for help. Within days, he called her personally to begin the process of helping her and soon were able to collect what my dad had fought for to, to earn for us. In fact, Representative Tejeda left a voicemail for my mom enthusiastically announcing that we had been successful in our appeal. And to date, uh, the mother, now 83, has, a voice, has that voicemail recorded uh, she still has that uh, to remind what what a great man did for their family. Oh, so you, you get a lot of stories like that all the time, and it's interesting because Frank was very shy and quiet and reserved. On a he lot was of a levels. workhorse, not a show horse. Yeah, yeah, he he didn't say much or braggart or anything, uh, but uh, Frank did a lot of important things. You know, he was the first Mexican American, you know, Chicano to win in that state rep district back in '76. Never been represented by a Mexican-American. And that's because he built a coalition of Anglos and Mexicans to win it, and he did, and, and he did that throughout his, his uh, career. You know, and, and blacks, the blacks uh, formed part of his district when he was a senator and um, uh, had very good alliances with, with all people. And, and that's, I think, what he really wanted to show, you know, that we're humans, you know. And he wanted beings. to deliver services. And he knew there was it injustice against, you know, especially the black and the Mexican-American community here, the poor people, and he wanted to do something about it. So it's interesting, interesting that this email talks about her mother, the father having brain cancer, and that's what happened to Frank. That's right. And, you know, we can speculate about Agent Orange, the defoliant yep. that the military used in Vietnam, and there are plenty of uh, veterans who were exposed to it who ended up with similar aggressive uh, brain cancers. Uh, but, you know, so how did... How did, how did you learn that your brother had a fatal brain cancer? My mom called me. And what'd she tell and, you? Uh, she told me that, Frank, this was like the day after his 50th birthday. Told me that Frank was in the hospital and he was going to have surgery the next day for a brain, uh, brain tumor. So I took off immediately to the hospital and there was some friends there, and uh, he had surgery the next day. And I was in the hospital room with my sister when they wheeled him in from brain surgery, and he was awake and bandaged and hairless and uh, responding. And then when the doctor came in and told him that it was serious brain cancer. How did the doctor deliver the news? Very cold. 
<laughs> very coldly, I thought, almost without even too much compassion. And just told him, you have the worst type of brain cancer that you can have, and you're definitely going to die from it. Now the only question is if it'll be three months or six months. And he lived for 17 months? He lived for 15 months after that. Yeah. He gave him three or six months at the most. And so how did your family take that? Terrible blow and shock, you know. Um, Frank was our shining star and model. Trying to make sense of it is impossible. He was our hero. It's because of Frank, even though we're very different, <laughs> that you know us and all our family are the way we are, right? And I think, you know, in his relatively short life, he did a lot of good for the community, and I think people should see him as an important role model and hero for, for the amazing things that he did when he was here on this earth. Do you think there are going to be kids like Frank who haven't found their way yet and will read this book? You know, maybe they've got, you know, they're, they're at one of these schools that is not really what it should be and they feel maybe they've been put upon or maybe they're running the streets and then they'll, they'll find a book and say, Mi Cardenal Frank, that speaks to me and I'll read it. I can do that. I can do that. I can I, be somebody. I hope so. And that was one of the reasons why I really wrote it and put it together the way I did because I hope it serves as an inspiration for these young. You know, yes, Chicano, you know, my people, Frank's people, but for all people, yeah. black, white, yellow, red, you know, across the world, justice is justice, you know, not just for some, and should be for all. So right so, now this book is being sold at the Guadalupe's Bookstore, Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center, soon to be sold at the Twig, and we're yes. looking for wider distribution down the line. You can find it online, where? At uh, flowersongpress.com and also on my website at uh, juantejeda.net I'm going to have a reading at the Twig coming up on, on March 17th and um, they're, in fact we're going to be at the San Antonio Book Festival also so oh, yeah. I'm excited about that that'll be great Yeah, Juantejeda thank you so much it was great to have you thank you David glad to be here this has been The Source on Texas Public Radio. The Source is hosted and produced by David Martin Davies. Kayla Padilla is our booking and engagement producer. Engineering support from Ruben Garcia, Jesse Reeves, and Steve Short. Dan Katz is TPR's Vice President of News. The Source is made possible with support from the Gladys and Ralph Lazarus Foundation.